Hi, and welcome to episode 44 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and my guest today is Tim Allen. Imagine you're out in the wilderness, at least an hour's walk from any sign of human life. It could be really hot, it could be freezing cold, but before you is a canyon or a snowbank or a river glittering in the sun. Just you, the landscape and your paints. This is how Tim Allen often starts off his expressive landscapes and it's become an important part of his practice. He won one of Australia's most watched landscape prizes last year, the Paddington Art Prize. He's also won the Kadumba Drawing Award and has had 19 solo shows across Australia. In this episode, you'll hear him talk about how Chinese brush painting fits in with his work, his very interesting methods when it comes to brushes, and he talks about another type of wilderness, the wilderness years before he started his master's degree. We recorded in his studio in the beautiful Blue Mountains, west of Sydney, surrounded by works which were going off to Defiance Gallery in Sydney a few days later. That solo show opens on 18 April 2018, about the time this podcast goes online. All the works we talk about are on the website, talkingwithpainters.com. We started at the beginning with Tim telling me where he grew up. Well, I was born in England, uh, but both my parents were Australian. And I came back, we came back out to Australia when I was two years old, so I don't really have many memories there. Oh, okay. So I grew up in suburbia, in Epping, in Sydney. That didn't, or at least I don't think it did, have too much of an impact on who I am or who I, who I was. It was a fairly nondescript, you know, middle-class kind of upbringing. Did you um, have any siblings? Do you have I've any got, siblings? I've got uh, one younger sister who's two, two years younger. Luckily, she was the younger one because we were both lucky enough to go to an um, uh, academically selective school, but I was lazy as anything until it came to art and she wasn't so thankfully no one realized what I could have been like they taught my sister two years later and then frequently refused to believe that we we're actually related because she was um <laughs> She's like, such, a, such a good kid you know worked so hard you know great role model it's like what Tim's your brother sure <laughs> well did you like school I mean, well, we're... actually, funnily enough, I did. I, it was a it was a really ill fit for me. So, to, to give it a name, I went to James Roos, which is you know, oh, okay, yeah, and, always and, number one on the yeah. Even back then, you know, it was a different world back then. No one was doing coaching to get in. Yeah. You just you know got in based on whatever your uh, primary school test. Uh, but I look, I had a really good bunch of friends. Um, yeah, I mean, it was kind of like you know, three units of maths, four units of science. Like it was all you know, you were lucky to get some art I probably should have been somewhere quite different I did poorly at all these academic subjects and kind of had a sense of myself because you were surrounded by these extremely smart high achieving people it probably did give me a sense of self-esteem or lack thereof that took some time to get Mm. over um, that's a, I think that's often the case with selective schools. Oh, yes. You know, you're really smart, but you're, if you're at the lower end of the really smart kids, you don't feel very smart. And I reckon <laughs> if I was going to psychoanalyse myself, the actual not trying was, was a passive-aggressive response to all of that. Like, well, if I didn't say I wanted to, to do it, then it didn't matter that I came, you know, right down here. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So, so who who knows? Um, yeah. But as, take you back a bit further. Um, as a kid, were you interested in art? Yes. So the the drawing was, and and my mum quotes this quite a lot. The drawing was the thing that came absolutely instinctively, you know, before words, before writing, obviously. And the thing, the happenstance thing that I, I reckon made a big difference, because I can remember it clearly, is my father, who was in, in no way, shape or form um, artistic, he, he was, um, a mat- well, was and is a mathematician, but then in the early 70s, he was working on mainframe computers, and I don't know if you have a memory of this, but... Um, it was all binary code printed out on these huge sheets of oh, paper. Yeah. And, and they sort of were oh, bigger than A3, the single sheets with perforations yep. that joined the sheets together and then those sort of um, holes at the sides. On the side, yeah. and so it And it was printed with your binary code and so it was surplus to requirements, but the binary code was so light grey that essentially it was these blank sheets. But because they were all folded with perforations, they actually stretch, well for hundreds of metres, potentially. So my father would bring these sheets home, and I I can remember this clearly. I'd lay them out from, you know, it wasn't a big house, but from, you know, one end of the dining room to the other end of the kitchen and just start drawing in crayon or whatever and just keep going. So there was this sense of, in a not, um, in a house that didn't, you know, in an environment where we didn't have that much, there was a sense of just literally unlimited paper. And, and And there was no limit to your imagination in drawing. And, and that, I, I remember it clearly, um, I took it for granted and I loved it. And yeah. So, so that oh, was, no, I think, I a really I remember when I was a kid, the idea of having just paper to draw on was, was a bit of a luxury. Mm. Like, it, it wasn't as if you'd get a ream of paper and have no, that around the so house. No, and so just go for it. Yeah. So I can imagine that would have just been like heaven, having it this, was. <laughs> this long I, piece. You don't know if it was chicken and egg. I mean, I think I had that innate need anyway, mm. but it was able to be expressed. It wasn't discouraged and there was a vehicle to do it. And also your parents didn't mind you doing that, like no. stretching it. <laughs> no, no, they, they were absolutely fine with that. No, yeah. there was never a sense of, you know, you're making a mess or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you, actually, you were saying before that you didn't have a TV till you were 18. Mm, yeah. What, what, why was that? Um, well, my parents um, kind of, they were the squarest hippies um, imaginable in that there was nothing hippie-ish about them at all, but they had some alternative ideas about what they thought life should be. And so we had no TV in the house. And I didn't even notice it up until I was probably a teenager. I just thought it was normal. And it didn't necessarily mean, I should add, that we therefore had wonderful, deep communication and conversation <laughs> as a family. What it meant is we all sat around the table reading books, oh, which right. was allowed, which was okay. So, yeah. we, so I read you know, at a high level from an early age and just read constantly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hated it when I was a teenager because as a pre-internet age, whatever was on TV the night before was seemed to me to be the only talking point at school the next day. Yeah. You know, whatever the one show was that everyone was watching. and everyone Countdown. Was, yeah, yeah, I missed that. Um, yeah. Although, mind you, music was okay because we had the radio. So actually, oh, right, I, yeah. I, was pro- I probably knew more about music than anyone else because <laughs> I, I, I made up for the lack of TV by... Yeah, all yeah, oh, right. Constantly, and uh, so so, did you do art at at high school? You did yeah, art I did school. art all the way through high school. Um, I was good at it 
I mean, I could always naturally draw. I mean, I just, I mean, all that practice, but also, again, I just think I had the hand-eye coordination. So I was always known, even at primary school, as the kid in the class who could draw, and I did it all the way through high school. I have to say, even by the time I got to the HSC, I wouldn't make any claims of my HSC major work, though. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't at a great level. I think, I, again, I guess the work ethic was not quite there. I just wasn't very mature. Yeah, and what, but at that point, were you thinking art was... Are you going to pursue art? Yes. So after high school, well, it was obvious I wasn't going into medicine or law or the things that all my, all my mates were going into. That had been obvious for some time. Yeah, it was going to be something art-related. And there was no sense at that point in school that an artist was a thing. Obviously, we knew artists existed, but, you know, as most people at that time, you know, they were, they were dead, they were in history books. There was mm. no sense that a living artist was a thing. So it was what mm. I could do that was art-related. So um, I think landscape architecture was a, th- a thought, design, graphic design, I can't remember what else. And I didn't get into them. Um, I didn't get good marks. Like, my marks were, ah. were, were really slack. And, in fact, the only reason the mark was even what it was, I suspect, was bumped up because it was a... Sc- <laughs> It got, you know, because of the school I was in. Yeah, it got scaled up. It was rubbish. So what did you do after school? So I had to, I I think I got into primary school teaching and went, no, no way. Uh, So I went to TAFE for a year. So it was kind of a gap year. And again, as I said, I was really immature anyway. But I spent a year doing uh, what we now call a certificate or a diploma at at TAFE, at the local TAFE, Meadowbank TAFE. That's like visual art. Uh, Visual art. So so it, it was a pure, just visual arts course. But it was almost like, well, you've just got to do something till you get into a proper course the next yeah, year. Right. But that changed my whole worldview. That, that year at TAFE was, um, was huge because then I met for the first time, say, the, the casual teachers, the part-time teachers who were teaching and then being artists. Ah, so I you thought, could see a lot. And I went to some galleries yeah. and I was like, oh, my God, this exists. That's all I ever wanted. I couldn't articulate it. I didn't know it was a thing. But the second I saw that, I was like, well, that's... That's it. And so from there, then I went to, you know, what became COFO is now New South Wales Art and Design, yep. um, was then City Art Institute. So then I went and did the degree and the postgraduate and right. you know, went down that And path. so had you, st- what was City Art Institute like? How did, what were those years like? Oh, really interesting years. It w- I loved it. Um, I mean, again, friendships I made there, I still have to this day. It, it was a real sense of oh, this is my tribe, you know, th- yeah. this is... I mean, you know, I loved all my school friends, still do, but, you know, different people, different worlds, this, this was me. So that sense of, of meeting like-minded people was, was fantastic. Um, around, I don't know if it was the end of first year or second year, there was a group of us, maybe three or four other artists, uh, students, and we discovered that you could go during the holidays and they'd open it up as a you know, a studio space. Oh, and yeah. because all of us are just were still living at home or just had bedrooms, had nowhere to work at home, we'd just start coming in every day just during the holidays and, oh. and had, had that sense, I mean, it's very romantic, you know, had that sense of this is what being an artist must feel like, you know, just turning mm. up and painting all day, there's not the teachers around, you've just got a great... Because back then we're in a warehouse on Flinders Street. Other artists will remember this brilliant warehouse. Now, you know, flats, of course, long gone. Um, but great big open spaces that you could get messy in. And so there was a sense of um, the possibilities. Yeah. The other thing that was really interesting at that time was a, we're talking sort of mid 
mid to late 80s now, this real change, um, which looking back it was really good to be part of, of um, cultural theory coming through for the first time what in Australian mean? art schools. Well, that sense of... There was still, how, do you, how would you call it, there was still a somewhat 19th century or early 20th century attitude, you'd probably say, in the, de- the painting department of the fairly old school male star artists kind of wandering around grandly. Um, <laughs> they were artists I really admired, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a highly critical environment in terms of you know, the, the broad sense of contemporary theory of, you know, post-colonial ideas of art, feminist ideas of art. Like mm. that was, so that was coming through from one campus and there was this fairly old school view in the other campus. And there, like, this is from, we were just the students absorbing it all, but this is mm. in, the, in the full-time lecturers. There was clashes, like there was, there was real, there was some hatred, you know, like real right. disagreements as, you know, new ideas came through and butted up against old ideas. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, needless to say, those new ideas needed to come through, absolutely essential. Yeah. Um, it, and were the students sort of for the new ideas? There was um, a mix. Um, there was a mix. And, I mean, it was something that took me a few years to process because I really admired some of the artists in the, in the painting department. And not all of them, I should say, were reactionary. I mean, some of them were just off to one side of the whole argument. But then looking back, it's like, yeah, but, geez, there were some attitudes that weren't right, you know, that, that needed to change. Yeah. <laughs> I, won't, I won't give a name, but there was um, a wonderful person too, but there was a teacher who was known to um, go swimming. He was a keen swimmer and would go swimming at Boy Charlton Pool during his lunch hour and then come back, um, but just still stay in his Speedos. <laughs> uh, seriously. And had a very big gut and um, would walk around. What, really? Just his Speedos? I'm not exaggerating. Just his Speedos. <laughs> I don't know how he got back from Boy Charlton to City Art, if, if there was a towel or something else at that point. I honestly don't know. Was but, that like Paddington or something? Oh, no. Where was City Art it, Institute? It's in um, Darlinghurst, Paddington. It's oh, a decent... Yeah, I mean, maybe right. drove. I honestly don't know how that happened, but... Walking around in the speedos. That's Australia for you. Very Australian, very old school, and and you know, imparting words of advice, you know, in his little speedos. It wasn't that long ago, but it was. It may have been know, in a different I, universe. I must say, like, you wouldn't see that happen now, would you? You would not. Well, you'd probably get carted off. You would get carted <laughs> off and charged with any number of offences. Um, yeah. So it was a pretty old school, yeah, environment. Yeah. yeah. What What about um, learning to paint? Well, interestingly, in that same environment, that year at TAFE is where I learnt to paint. Oh, okay. Technically learnt to paint. Didn't back then happen at City Art. And funnily enough, it hasn't changed that much. Doesn't happen that much now at Art and Design or Sydney College or whatever. And, and that's not being cynical. Like, that's not the expectation. Mm. You almost need, if, if you want those skills, if it's important for your practice to have those skills, you need to develop them somewhere else. Take them into that institute mm. and then you will learn what to do with them. But there just isn't enough time to develop them. Yeah, right. Um, and also, I suppose, you see, back then, though, it wouldn't have been so easy to go off and just figure it out for yourself. Although now I would say with YouTube, I mean, I know that sounds true. ridiculous, but yeah, with no, YouTube, you, could, you, you, you can find... do it a lot easier mm. than, than back then, I would have thought. Mm. But um, so did you, did you start with oils like in, at 
TAFE? I started with oils at TAFE. So at City Art, the other interesting thing about that era, again, it's amazing how much we actually looked up as a cohort to the teachers considering all of this. Um, but the other thing that they were kind of useless at uh, was actually teaching. Um, <laughs> it was still the kind of hangover from the 70s where, yeah, again, you sort of, the teacher just wandered around and by osmosis, just them being there was meant to impart something. Um, and then they wandered off to the pub. Um, the teacher, I mean, it, it, it sounds terrible. About, this is a city artist. This is a city teacher, art. Right. Yeah, but I loved it. I absolutely yeah, yeah, loved yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. The teacher who, and, and I won't say a bad word about who I admired as an artist, as a human being, above all else, and, and was a real influence, was Kevin Connor. And, and Kevin's a dead set legend. I mean, one of the, mm. the greatest late 20th century artists in Australia, I believe. And, you know, won the Archibald a few times. He's won everything there is to win, and he's just an, an utter legend. Mm. Um, and I was very lucky to have him probably in about my second year or maybe third year, I think, just for one semester. And he was probably, I'm guessing, in his mid 50s then. And he was just about to finish teaching for good to just be full time as an artist. Um, and so I think I might have literally had him in his last semester there. And, you know, one of the other teachers used to call him Whispering Kev, just such a quiet, shy, humble, wonderful human being. Mm -hmm. At the same time, his, his oft-repeated mantra for teaching was, there, there's only one thing you can teach, which is the word start. And as a student, you kind of go, oh, that's deep, that's good. And then you sort of think a bit later... Well, that's you off the hook, isn't it? Like, I mean, you know, <laughs> you can just bugger off for the rest. I mean, like, no, I think there's actually more to it than that. And I've talked quite a lot in the years since, and um, there is a lot more to it than that. Yeah, yeah. Well, so. There's, so much to, there's so much to learn with painting. I mean, I still sort of trying to figure things out. I mean, I'm going to ask you a few questions later, actually, try and get some ideas from you. But, okay, so you went to City Arts Institute. How did you get your first show? After that, there was a bit of time between going to City Art and my first show, probably almost 10 years, bit slight wilderness years. But um, I look back at that period now, and I know this is a common thing to say, but it's like, ah, but everything I'm doing now in some way can be traced back to those 10 years. Look, everyone's different. I left, and I, I guess this could go back to high school, who knows, but I left without a lot of confidence. Funnily enough, I mean, I other people were perceiving me as someone who was going to do well. Like, you know, that sense of, oh, you'll be fine. I didn't see that. But immediately after art school, I um, worked at an art shop for about 10 months or so and then went overseas and travelled overseas for about two and a half years. So by the time I came back, I'm in my mid-20s. I spent a few years then being an absolutely classic Generation X um, slacker <laughs> in that I, kind of, I had a job at an art shop um, didn't pay well, um, but really all I was doing is living for the weekends, going rock climbing, going backcountry skiing, hanging out with my slacker mates and living what I look back to now and think of as a, you know, uh, an absolutely no responsibility kind of quite yeah. a ideal life, bit of yeah. a dead end life at a certain point. So had you thought, had you given away the idea of being a no, painter? No, no. I, if if I, w I was an artist, like, except to survive... In a, in a fairly low-paying job I had at an art shop, I had to do it three or four days a week to even mm. barely survive in Sydney. Mm. And then I was off climbing and skiing all mm. the rest. You know, I, there was, I did have... I mean, I actually... I had a studio, like, the whole time. I never oh, stopped okay. making art. 
the, the turning point, actually, and with some justification, um, my wife Emily will claim it's all her, because we got together when I was about 28, and she was finishing up, she came from New, over from New Zealand, she was finishing up a degree and then finish it up in Sydney when she came over to be with me. And I thought, oh, well, if you're going to be studying in that time, I guess I'd been thinking about it for a while, but I actually went back and did my MFA, my master's. And, and that was the key. That was the like, yeah, look, I actually want a bit more out of this. I, I actually want to take this a bit more seriously. And I think then I could trace it right back to the school thing and think, actually, I want to succeed rather than saying I'm not trying, you know, like, and I want to succeed. And if I don't, say la vie, but I actually want to acknowledge I'm trying to mm. rather than just bumming along and kind of like I'm not part of that part of society. I'm just having fun over here. I'm setting my own mm. kind of agenda. So what was the master's like? Well, that was great. And, and that really, for me, was the beginning of my professional career. I, I went back to drawing. So I actually felt the painting hadn't been working that well. So in my master's, I, I specifically went back just to drawing and I actually took it back to the, the simplest I could. I went back to charcoal drawing, charcoal on paper, nothing else. And then I, I went back to the landscape because it wasn't, even though I'd been the landscape and being in the outdoors and these wilderness environments had been such a big part of who I was. I hadn't explicitly connected it to my art practice. There'd been almost these two things. Mm. So I went back to the landscape. And then the broad thing I was kind of trying to do there was say, I can identify these two quite different parts of who I am. I'm naturally an expressionist artist, but there's more to it than that. It's not an unmediated expressionism. There's, there's a sense... Of, of something else. There's a sense of a discipline, there's a sense of a, of a quietness, a stillness, and although it wasn't an influence, it was an a priori thing, but I found the explanation of that in, in my practice in Chinese brush painting. And so I started researching that and found in, in that historical process, there was actually a sense of, of waiting and thinking, um, but not pre-planning, and then launching in trying to get it right, stopping, pulling back. and uh, How does that work in Chinese brush painting? I don't know much about that. Well, because it, 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 there's, there's no room for error. So ink, ink on paper, and, and I use and still use a lot of ink on paper myself and watercolour on paper. So ink on paper, there's no mistake. There's mm. no, every, every mark is, is seen. And not only that, uh, the way the ink works, the very first instant of the mark hitting the page is the darkest part of it. Like Because as the mark keeps going, the, the brush dries and, and gets thinner. So you can't kind of tentatively say, look, I think I'll go from here to here and put a few pre-planning marks. So that's just technically with how the ink on paper works, but also that's um, culturally, and, and it connects to Buddhism and it connects to Zen Buddhism, that, that sense of the, um, the, the knowing inwardly. And, and very much connects to uh, calligraphy as well, mm. that, that sense of precision. but loo- So it's a precision and looseness together. And also it's the blank page. Like it's, it's the, the sense of what isn't put down speaks as much as what is put down, the negative spaces, the mm. emptiness, or in, um, even in the really thin washes that you almost don't see. And so doing the master's, uh, you know, it, as, as funnily enough, as these things are actually meant to do, but don't always do, it actually gave me a, a core, a grounding to say that, yes, this is who I am. I, I am this person. And, oh, and the other aspect of it was then looking at the landscape and saying, well, this is who I am. This is my background in the landscape. I, I have a really deep um, connection um, 
and you know put all that together this is where I spring from so I always sort of talk about you know I've sort of finished art school like 30 years ago but my actual professional career started 20 years ago mm. but those t- roughly 10 sort of wilderness years now ah, I look back very fondly yeah <laughs> and um what, that was quite minimalist work back then like with that first show yeah the, the end result visually was quite minimalist but but there was lots of work that went into it um a lot of it was like rubbing back and sanding back and and mm. sort of um pushing back to something um yeah, we were looking at that work in your in, house. In it was house. absolutely yeah. beautiful. Um, so you're working with charcoal and, and um, pastel? And pastel, chalk pastel. Yeah, yeah. on beautiful paper, on yeah. quite large works. Well, since that, let's, let's jump a bit forward because since that time, your work's become increasingly representational, mm. although, you know, I wouldn't, we're looking at some beautiful works at the moment which are going to be carted off to the gallery next week. And they are just... Uh, you know, beautiful brushwork, um, very expressive. Mm, um, how did you? What was? What was it? Do you think that made you move away from more abs- that more abstract sort of work? I hit a point where yeah, I'd been working with the landscape as my main source material, but I hit a point where I felt like I just I'd lost something. Like I'd reduced it down to its essence in in a certain direction, and. Um, because the mark making is such an important part of what I do and always has been. So this, this naturally expressive, loose, free, can kind of go anywhere it wants to mark making, there's such an easy tendency to find yourself repeating certain gestures and certain marks. I mean, you know, there's that muscle memory in, 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 your, in your body. Mm. So I made a conscious decision that I needed to um, get out there and actually paint in the landscape. Uh, Why? I guess I felt like I needed to build up, if, if I could articulate it to myself, um, a bigger repertoire of marks. So this I didn't see as deliberate, but it's become a really important part of it, that actually that taking myself out there to the landscape, in, not initially to the remote landscape, that's happened more recently, mm. but doing that's become the alternative, that, that, that actually what is really important psychically for me is actually spending decent amount of time in these really, um, you know... Remote sort remote, of... Remote, um, and, and remote um, not just in kilometres, remote in terms of it's just you and, and you're mm. under your own steam and your own skill and your own, you know, it's, it's intense. Why do you think um, that makes a difference? Um, that that kind of leads us into different different discussions about, I guess wilderness and wilderness landscapes and and um it's it's almost a philosophical discussion as as well but that that sense of the regenerative aspect of it the the just yourself in the landscape do i you mean fi- do you feel a different you're in a different state when you're there yes i mean it's it's one that i, I hesitate because it's I've never quite found the perfect words to use. Like I'm really loath to use words that hint at things like spiritual because I just think it's an overused word and I, to the point of almost being meaningless. But a full day spent in an environment where you've... I mean, to me, nothing really happens until you can't see, you know, a car or a path or, you know, a sign. Mm. If you've spent a full day 
taking yourself out somewhere where you really are, you're on your own, literally and metaphorically, you've got to look after yourself. Mm. Um, how long would it take you to get to those places? Well, it depends how these days how much I load myself up with painting supplies because that can be quite heavy. I would say generally for my brain to start kicking into gear, I'd need to walk at least for an hour. And I think, I think that walking time is really, that's the other thing, just that, you know, as, as millions of studies have proved, like what the walking does to the, the brain and, and the creative. And to me, that's, that's, that's my thinking time, my sketching time, like as in not literally sitting down sketching, that's rehearsing in your mind, like what you're looking at and what's going on. And so that time is that time getting into the landscape. So it's oh, so you've you've got to make sure that you're well away from any sort of civilization. Yeah, which isn't to say I can't paint unless it's that environment. I mean, I've done lots of painting trips, you know, with other artists where you know we we sit around at the edge of the you know car park potentially or, or whatever. But that's a different thing. There's there's something that happens which takes me back to my more purely outdoors focused days when I wasn't being as much of an artist where if I go out into one of those environments where everything's on my back and the drawing big drawing boards are tied to the pack and in the pack I've got enough water for the day almost regardless of whether those works become great works or left unfinished or lead into other works or what have you I'll, I'll leave that day feeling like it's effing good to be alive and and this is this is who I am and what I do and, and it's, you know, mm. and it has some meaning, like it's, so yeah. Um, mm. And so would you find that uh, you'd, be, you'd be able to tap into your creative self pretty quickly in those circumstances? Yes. Um, like easier, like I mean easy, it's probably hard to say, but easier say than in the studio? Different, different. Like the, the, the two... Um, yeah, the two bounce off each other. Like, so the studio practice. So I need the studio practice. I, I, I def- even though I had that short period where I just did plein air. Like now, this show coming up. I mean, ninety percent of it is studio. Um, yeah, well, you couldn't carry these on your back. <laughs> into I've the, actually, I've actually this. done that, but there is, there is limits. Have you? Yeah. <laughs> it, it gets to the point where you think, what am I trying to prove here? I just don't need to keep <laughs> oh, doing so this. Oh, so you have taken large canvases yeah, into the wilderness. Yeah, I have. But, oh. but look, it gets a bit silly at a certain <laughs> point. I have certainly pushed it as far as I think it's worth pushing it, and now I kind of have a sense of, um, look, this is as much as I need to do. Yeah. Um, and, and broadly, I've stopped oil painting as well, although I, I, I can. There's a, a mixed media on, on larger sheets of paper thing that I can, I can do quite quite happily oh so you because you could roll it up no i no i keep it i keep them stretched on the boards i sort of pre-stretch them on the board so i can do two or three large um works on quite thin marine ply boards okay and then i take some glassine paper and i put them between i strap them all together i got quite a system what um environment could you would do you think would is the most um sort of challenging physically like because i've seen photos of you in really quite um, you know, rough weather conditions, snow, yes, uh, <laughs> freezing cold, yes. and it looks pretty uncomfortable. Some of those you can only stay for um, an hour or hour and a half. I mean, the things that happen are you lose feeling in your hands and you lose feeling in your feet. And I mean, <laughs> it, you know, 
there are there are limits. I mean, in both cases, you don't want to keep that going for days on end. You'll start to get frostbite. Um, but the ha- the hand things you just can't draw. And also, you get to a point where you think, not only that, I'm not going to be able to pack everything up. So. <laughs> So, um, so we were like snowy mountains, I think, was one yeah, of them, was it? Yeah, so I've painted literally in the snow. It's in, well, I've painted in the snow a few times, but while it's actually been snowing um, <laughs> on, a, on a number of occasions. I mean, there does become a bloody-minded aspect to it where you think, actually, pull back, you don't need to do this. When it's been snowing, uh, one of the times I thought, look, I'll go mixed media because the weather's so foul, um, I need something that's going to dry fast. But, of course, when it's 100% humidity, even the water-based media doesn't dry and then the snow comes and just makes it run everywhere Um, (laughs) but I felt like I went back to the studio and I kind of salvaged something there yeah right well the other things you've talked about when you're working out uh plein air is uh you use words like energy and anxiety Mm, um, mm. Does that help you in, in, in your work? Yeah. Do you want that to happen? Do you want yes. to feel those in a things? Con- in a controlled environment, yes. I think too much of any of those things and you, you can't function. Look, it's, it's not dissimilar to having a deadline for a show or a project or anything like that. You want, I think you want a certain amount of anxiety at the sense of, oh, my God, this needs to be done to hype you up to get going. Uh, tip it over the edge to more and you become paralysed and, and you can't do stuff. So we're sitting here in your beautiful studio, which has got a car in it as well, <laughs> a dusty car. A dusty old Mercedes, yeah. It's a great studio. It's got a great tin roof and I love it. And it's right in the middle of the bush. You can hear the birds mm. singing. I love this space and I can, I'm sure you do too. I do. It's wonderful. And um, we're looking at some brilliant works, which you were saying would arise from time spent within the Blue Mountains, which in remote areas. Mm. So we're looking at sort of, well, one work in particular I'm looking at is called Swoon, which is absolutely gorgeous. It's, this, it's, it's like a, um, a canyon sort of structure with this cool water um, going through, going up sort of two thirds up the, the canvas. And the, the, in the foreground is beautifully lit water. Like you've got these beautiful blues and greens and mustard colours. It's just absolutely oh, gorgeous. You. And, of course, we, you see that so beautifully when we stand back. But when you go up close, you see it's just, you know, it's almost abstract. The, mm, the, the application yeah. of paint is just so thick and the colours, there's so many colours in there. To be able to create that, that representational effect, do you need to stand back from it, like, quite a bit and go, what's your process like in that way? Yes, I, I find it's, a, it's an absolute constant pacing I think this fits in with my natural tendency to, um, um, well, it might seem like a natural tendency to laziness, but also it, connecting to the Chinese brush painting, that sort of space around the mark. So it's really important to me, that sense that going up close, particularly to the larger works, the structure falls apart into, well, chaos. Hopefully mm. interesting and engaging chaos, but, but a sense that you can't see or you can't imagine how when you pull back it actually would all make sense. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. want the I don't want the, the puppet strings to be kind of seen there. And and in, and there aren't any in a sense that there's no preliminary drawing, there's no underpainting. Oh really? Well, so... well there's underpainting, but just that's trying to work things out from scratch. Like there's no um, sense of pre-planning other than in my head and a couple of sketches maybe. But yeah, I really want those two things to happen. And 
the secret of it, if, if there's a secret, is just constantly pacing. It's almost, I mean, it's a little bit mad, but it is almost literally one brush mark, stand right back, another brush mark, stand right back. Uh, like I was joking before, I could get my 10,000 steps up just pacing in my studio. Another part of my technical sort of mania for like this is the way it works for me is one brush mark, one brush, right, that's it, clean brush. Really? Um, I, <laughs> I could use 50 or 60 brushes in a session. I, I reckon <laughs> I spend as much time cleaning my brushes as I do painting. That, that's just become part of my kind of thing that works for me. So for me, that allows some of that wet-on-wet wet stuff to go quite, um, again, uh, expressive and happenstance but but i've got a really quite ordered controlled um environment outside on the palette and with the brushes i would mm. say too the 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 um the, the the person i would look up to in this regard which i didn't know they did this until i read them in depth and it just happens naturally in me but that was de kooning and i reckon if it works for de kooning i'm kind of <laughs> cool with that he yeah. with that dutch kind of um uh, background and that ordered classical kind of upbringing he had you know it is reported really really clean studios even from when he was dirt poor right at the beginning oh. and so all of that work of like absolute you know all, all that battle of, of marks on the work to find an image but his studio was all laid out and clean so you don't think like wiping the brush is enough no <laughs> <laughs> so does that mean you got like a row of clean yeah. brushes yeah Right, that's that's a yeah. really good tip. No, I, I seriously, you know I do one mark because you, if you do a wet on wet mark, I mean this is why this is why the palette knife becomes useful. But I just don't like the palette knife; it doesn't work for me. The palette knife's an easy way to do this wet on wet sort of stuff. Wipe it clean each time. Bingo, you can do it, and it all sits nicely. The brush is much more open to completely falling to pieces, like in terms of what you're trying to create as an image, but. If you've got wet paint underneath and you, you drag a brush loaded with a different colour over the top of that, you've got one mark to do it because all you've got to do is look at the brush at the end of that and it's half the clean new paint and half the wet paint underneath that you've dragged off. Yeah. But if you drag it over there once, then they interact in an interesting way. You drag it back again a second time, well, you just got mud, yeah. you've mixed them all Especially up. Especially blue so and orange. Point, well, yes, that's <laughs> quite. So at that point, it's like, well, that brush is done for the day and, um, oh and get another God. one. Oh, my God. You yeah. must have a lot of cleaning up to do at the yeah, end of the day. Yeah, huge amounts. I'll have this thing where, like, you know, the kids will <laughs> ring or Em will ring at the end of the day and kind of like, oh, you know, it's, you know are, you, are you coming back soon? And I'll say, yeah, I've just got to clean my brush. And it's like, oh, God, okay. You <laughs> get, see you in an hour. See you in a few hours, yeah. <laughs> it becomes a de, fact, a de facto way of saying, actually, I'm nowhere near ready. It's surprising that for a, a body of water that is, is, is quite a calm sort of body of water. Mm. You've used a lot of quite expressive brush strokes, mm. but it still gives that feeling oh, of good. that beautiful oh, peacefulness, you Lovely. know? And I think that's what, it, that's, that's what is amazing about painting, is that you can see something like that, and everybody knows that feeling mm. of seeing oh, the sun on the mm. water, you know? Mm. And, and you can't get that with a photo. I don't... Well, you sometimes can. It's, it depends. But I reckon that's, you know, paintings can really just... I don't know what it is. Oh, it's probably hopefully. I mean, look, I, I don't know. I mean, hopefully, it can yeah take you beyond the specific and 
because again, this particular, to the extent that this comes from, well, it doesn't come from one particular place, but it comes from a memory and sketching and, and photos of a number of places in this area. Mm. And then I've kind of put it all together in a slightly made up way. Um, but to the extent it's a particular place, most people viewing this show won't have been there. So if, it can con- if they can bring whatever they've seen to that, yeah, and yeah. then maybe it can just transport them, hopefully, somewhere kind of... Um, you know, I don't want to say magical, that sounds naff, but you know, somewhere that they can just um, imagine themselves in, even if they can't um, uh, place it exactly. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's well, you what were I saying that, that that place that you went to is quite remote. That... Well, it's, it's remote in the sense that you have, you have to have some knowledge of map and compass and, and some, um, if you haven't been taken there by someone, some sense of a guide, you know, a written guide, um, and some amount of ability and experience. But if you've got all that, like it's an hour and a half drive from Sydney and, a, and, a, and an hour or two walking. Like it's not... Yeah. You not know, it's, people it's have a, got that, Tim. I know. As <laughs> I, I get older, I realise that's relatively rare. I mean, this is the... Th- I took it for granted when I was young because this is what I got brought up into. I just assumed everyone was like that. Well, you know, the idea of being thrown in the middle of the Blue Mountains with a compass to me is like a horrifying <laughs> idea. <laughs> but, um, you know, you were actually saying that you, you found it difficult at first to find a way to paint the Blue Mountains. What, what, why is that? This part of it in particular, I mean, the Blue Mountains in general, um, my last show two years ago, which I called Cliff Line, was for the first time saying, I'm going to deal with the Blue Mountains. Look, I've lived here for 17 years or whatever. Yeah, 17 years, I think. And I'd been, you know, before that, I'd been you know, going rock climbing on the weekend you know, for 10 years before that sort of thing. So I kind of, I know this area, I should be able to deal with it. Um, the sea of eucalypt that, um, that, that bleaches out into no tone um, and, and a very brownish colour is one struggle. But the other thing, of mm. course, is, now I've had this conversation with a few people, but f- for no reason, I think, other than the, the happenstance of, of history, it's become seen to be a bit of a, for want of a better word, a Sunday painting sort of subject. Now, I don't think there's anything even vaguely inherent in the landscape that gives it that. Um, And the... the Maybe it's the the bluey thing. The blue... And actually, I should say, for the the benefit of our overseas listeners, Mm. the Blue Mountains is just west of Sydney. And if you look at it from afar, it's because of the eucalypts, isn't it? It looks blue. Well, any mountain range will do that based on atmospheric effects and distance oh, right. to an extent. I, I don't... I mean, yes, it's talked about with the eucalypt and the haze, but I don't actually think the Blue Mountains are any more blue than any other. Oh, right. <laughs> to be honest, I think it was a lack of imagination in the, um, uh, the early uh, white settlers. But um, <laughs> Actually, you're probably right. Other mountain ranges are blue as well, well aren't if they? You go, if they're far <laughs> enough back, they go, they go blue. Um, but the, the thing I always kind of think of as a possible alternative history if you think of melbourne painters um let's say 20th century melbourne painters um like 19th century um okay streeton did a couple of amazing paintings of the blue mountains he did that famous painting fires on of the lapston hill but that's really about them building the railway but it's Mm. still a stunning painting um, of australian impressionism but if you think about 20th century painting of the landscape and you can think about someone like um, Fred Williams going to the place that he could get to in a day close to Melbourne and paint. 
which was the Yuyangs and, and other places like that. And mm. he made these iconic paintings. Mm. But for whatever reason, it seems to me that that didn't happen to the Blue Mountains. Like, I just have this yeah, alternate yeah. reality of, like, the Blue Mountains could have been seen to be quite different. But, you know, people like... Yeah, I suppose that's true. People what could if Fred have tried and then, and then, yeah, what if Fred Williams lived here? Uh, but people could have tried and then went, actually, no, it's really bloody hard and, and, and found yeah. it and left, left it alone. It's very, well, it is very challenging painting these areas, I would have thought, because there's so many trees. So I've left them all out. Yeah. That's a simple answer. Just, just pretend they're well, not Well, we're there. looking at another one here, actually. Let's talk about um, Buoyant, because mm. this is one of my favourites. Oh, thank you. And um, it is sort of of the Blue Mountains, and it's this very large, well, they look like very large rock formations, very dramatic. I really want, yeah, I, I, I amped up the slightly gothic thing there. I, I, wanted, <laughs> I wanted to go there and see what happened, yeah. Yeah, and again, you sort of use a really beautiful, like, it's a cadmium orange, in, isn't it, yes, on the right yes, there? Yes, I went, I went, I went cadmium orange Yeah, again. over this yeah. dark section of it. Yeah. It's a beautiful dark section of, of a of a mountain or hill yeah, or whatever, yeah, yeah. and then the cadmium orange is swept over the top, which, I mean, that's bold because... Well, that, that was luck, or luck from trying that. So, again, you get one shot at it. That was the dark underneath was wet. That actually then, although I've changed because there was problems with it, that was um, using a broom as a brush, and that was really just loading that up with a tonne of cadmium orange and one drag wet on wet over the top. And, again, in order to get it... Um, the start of the drag, if you go, le it goes left to right. Yeah. See how it's darker initially. So that's obviously trying to hit it very lightly at first and then pushing a little bit harder as you go. Now, I can't even say that that's what I was thinking at the time, but I know looking back at it now that I had a sense of I didn't want it uniform. I wanted it to kind of... Um, get more intense. Get in more intense, yeah. but it really is one mark. Oh, um, God, it works well. And if it doesn't work, that's it. You can't keep keep going. And I, yeah. I, I'm glad you like it. Yeah, I, I was happy And did that. you – actually, I saw you on Instagram with a broom. What it's, is that about? Oh, well, I just wanted it big enough. I wanted a mark that on that scale um, – so, so it's giving yourself, I think, something that makes life really awkward and then trying to be – it's kind of working against – another way to put it, it's working against facility. Like it's working against a natural skill level and kind of saying, I, I don't want it to look slick. I'm going to bring something in that is, is naturally going to give a real awkwardness and could go horribly wrong. And then when I brought that in, I actually try and paint as well as I can. But, but again, I keep talking about this sort of tension or an anxiety between these different kind of competing modes. I just wanted a brush that was bigger than anything I had. I actually loved what I could do with it, but um, I ran out of um, brooms because the thing I discovered is you just cannot clean them. Not to the level I want. Like I want my brushes really, really clean. And I'd use like about a couple of litres of terps, redo it about three. It's only like a seven or eight dollar broom handle redo it several times and it's it wouldn't come out fluffy you know what i mean it wouldn't come yeah. out like the original the softness of the original and it'd be like no bugger it it's not good enough second time round. like it's not going to give me the effect i want second time round. so it's literally a one-use brush which from <laughs> i just don't think i could justify from either a cost or an environmental um aspect so i i kind so of pulled actually, back from that you know i'm from a logistical point of view how do you how do you get paint on a, on a, a broom like that? 
Oh, I, I, I um, squeezed out enough on the pallet, like the pallets, you know, the size of a tabletop, and I squeezed out enough that it was about, you know, um, a foot wide and, you know, 10 centimetres thick. And so, so basically I just took the broom just as if it was, a, you know, and oh. dragged it once across there. So it, the, all the front was front-loaded with all that paint, and therefore I knew I had that one go. So when it hit the wet paint, again... If I pushed a bit heavier, it would mainly be the orange. Pull yeah. back a bit light. It's mainly the wet paint underneath. But yeah, oh, it's fun. But again, that ten- I mean, you were talking before about the the tension of the working plein air. Well, here's the studio tension. It's kind of like you know, well, well, it's all or nothing. You know, like yeah. I mean, it's not the end of the world. I mean, I just do another canvas. But there is that sense of I think that focuses the mind and and. You know, says, well, let's yeah. get this right. You know? Well, if I if I look behind that, so underneath that, it, it's beautifully done, that whole section. Oh, so you. it must have been, you know, you just take a deep breath. Yes. And But do you yeah. sort of, do you really think that through before you do it? Or do you think, okay, now I'm just going to go for it and wham? I'm trusting the subconscious. I, I pace, I look, I look, I look. I, sometimes I can articulate it to myself, but sometimes... I just do. I've got. I mean, again, I think it's madness. I mean, I think most artists' routines are kind of mad if you break them down. It's just what works for them. But I'll do this thing where I'll I'll kind of be pacing. I'll sit. I'll read. I'll have the music on. I'll get myself hyped up, and I'll actually catch myself going, "Right, let's go," and then I don't. <laughs> like I said, it's like no one was watching. You didn't have to pretend, you know. But it's kind of like getting yourself, and it's almost oh, like yeah. so. The point at which you actually do, you trust that you're ready to. You know, yeah. like that you've actually got yourself to the point. It doesn't always work. No. Actually, um, you know, this is on a related topic um, that I haven't actually asked many artists about, but I'm interested in. Do you suffer from procrastination? Oh, when... God, yes. <laughs> Hugely. In the, at the beginning of the day? Yes, I'm a night person. Yeah. I'm very, I'm very slow to get going. It's it, at the back end of a show like this when it's all kind of coming together and I just you get to that very, very, well, for me, I assume for most people, zone where it kind of is generally all working. You just want to get there and paint and paint. And, and you just generally it's going to work, you know, as in there'll be mistakes along the way, but you, you know how to deal with them. It's all fine. I'll generally know it's awful. And um, this is where, um, I mean, it's all kind of understanding who you naturally are. So this process of the constant pacing, the, the one really bold mark, the standing back and thinking before the next one. I, I, again, I back that to the hilt. But, geez, it looks very suspiciously like procrastination. And, <laughs> and you know, and, and I, will, I, will fly, I will catch myself where I've kind of gone, nah, mate, you're just on social media now. You're not really preparing for the next mark. You know, like you've, you, you've kind of gone yeah, off to right, one side. right. So I think those two do sit side by side. Mm. Um, but it's, I, you know, I, I guess all this thing of being an artist, it's, it's about trying to paint the best painting as a result of who you actually are and that's understanding who you are and then trying to get the best out of that and think, okay, well, I'm naturally inclined towards procrastination, but there are elements of that that are actually kind of good, Useful. not pure procrastination, but there's, there, there's, a, there's a thinking going on mm. there that mm. can be harnessed and can be good. Mm. But yes, it can drift off as well. Well, well yeah, because you can't actually, you, you, you can't keep going if if it's not if you're not feeling it. No, no, that's it. You, yeah. you can't just say, okay, I'm just going to work through this. I, I can't procrastinate anymore. You've got to wait for for the 
for that to happen, I think. I agree. And um, what about um, your routine? Have you got a routine? Yeah, I try to. Um, I mean, it's a little bit around the, the kids, which is, which is good to have that sort of structure. So once they get off to the school bus in the morning, I tend to be down here. I'm not fast in the morning. I don't rush anything. I don't try and force myself. You know, I've done it in the past. If you sort of think, yeah, you've got to actually be painting at the easel, you know, eight hours a day. I just, I just create crap if I do that. Like, there's just no point. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, but the main thing for me is to get down here. Mm. And even if I'm down here and even if for the first bit I'm, I mean, okay, being on social media wouldn't be uh, an excuse, but even if I'm down here reading an art book or something like that, yeah. just, I'm here and it's, and it's going on around me. And then the other obvious thing is if it's in between times where it's not, the work's not really giving its own impetus, well, there's, you know, there's stretching canvases, there's endless cleaning brushes, there's, yeah. there's what have you. And then um, if the routine, the studio routine's feeling a little bit barren, um, of course it's like, well, time to organise a trip. You know, either just for myself for the day. And the thing I know with that is if I'm feeling, like I was talking about before, if I'm feeling a bit flat and a bit dead, if I, you know, pack the backpack the night before and feel like I'm going out on an expedition, I know I'm going to come back from that day physically exhausted and mentally energised, Energized, yeah. no matter what the work's created. So it's kind of like, if in doubt, just go and do that because it's bloody good for your yeah. mental health and physical health in every way Yeah. otherwise. And if it's not happening and you're trying to force it, yeah, I think that can yeah. become self, self-defeating. self Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And do you um, play music or anything in the studio? Oh, look, I've always got something going on in, in the headphones. Well, well, that, but that tends to just be connected to um, that where I'm at at that process, as in um, if I'm sitting, oh, I'll just have Radio National going on or whatever in the background. But if I'm ready to go and, and have an hour or so of really intense painting, then I just want to get something you know, emotive enough or loud and fast enough just to kind of, just to get that routine. It's yeah. not like I need to block anything else out down here. It's so, it's so, <laughs> so peaceful it's anyway. It's so quiet. I um, know, it's absolutely beautiful. But it really is just as a, as a signifier to yeah. get the routine yeah. kind of going and yeah. be switched on. There's still going to be, coming back to this show coming up, there's still going to be that thing that happens with everyone. For me, it's like, about halfway through the dinner after the opening, you just hit the wall. And, and it's just, you're just utterly exhausted to the point you can hardly keep your head off the table sort of thing. And this overwhelming sense of what's the point of it all kind of comes mm. over you. And that's just that it's not just that you've been working hard in the months leading up to it. It is that sense of putting yourself out there and, mm. and the risk of like, well, you know, how much will they be liked or how much will they sell or, or whatever. Um, and even though you're fine with all of that, it, it does add up. It's it's mm. it's energy, and then suddenly, mm. for better or worse, it's done, um, and it's exhausting. I oh, look. I don't That's feel that on social actually. media. Interesting, actually. Does that happen? So that that happens sort of after every show. Every show. Yeah, yeah. and everyone everyone I know I speak to says yeah. that too. Yeah, it's good to know yeah. that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because so you understand that it's okay. Mm. It's it. You understand. Don't respond to these feelings, you know. Mm. You know, like don't don't question whether you're an artist or not. And you know, like that's you know, it's, it's just forget it, let it go. You just observe it almost out of body experience and go, oh, that's that's that. You yeah, know, yeah. Get home, get some rest. You know, you'll be back to your usual self yeah, in a day or two. Yeah. Great advice. Great advice. 
Well, Tim, thank you so much for That's having me in your studio. I just love, I love seeing all these works um, glad like before they go off to Defiance Gallery next week. And um, good luck with the show. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for coming up. Thanks for listening to this episode. I'll be getting a short video of Tim in his studio onto the Talking With Painters YouTube channel soon, so watch out for that. Just search Talking With Painters playlist on YouTube. Also, I'm pretty excited that the podcast has been selected as a finalist in the Australian Podcast Awards in the Arts and Entertainment category. If you're interested in seeing what other podcasts are on that list, go to australianpodcastawards.com and have a look at all the finalists. And as you probably know, the show is on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. I'm not trying to say, oh, everyone think of going to the snowy mountains. I just want to create an environment that takes you somewhere and you can put your sense of where you've been or what you've seen onto it and just feel like you're transported somewhere. Mm.